0: In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Beautiful to see you all here this morning. Cold, foggy morning. You know, these days, it seems like everyone is writing a memoir, especially if you're a politician seeking higher office or a celebrity seeking to be a politician. Memoirs are flooding the bookstores. I think it's because all the publicists of the world are telling their clients to frame their own narratives before someone else frames them. This morning, we hear from one of the world's first memoirists, Nehemiah, a politician of sorts, the governor of Judah. Nehemiah wrote what biblical scholars call the Nehemiah Memoir about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And it's one of those rags-to-riches stories that just flies off the bookshelves these days. Nehemiah's story begins in the court of the Persian king, where he was serving as a lowly cupbearer. This was when Persia ruled over most of the known world, including Jerusalem and the land of Judah. Just by way of context, this was about 140 years after the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and took all its leaders into exile, it was about 100 years after the Persian King Cyrus conquered the Babylonians and liberated the Jewish exiles. So one day, a traveler from Jerusalem comes to the Persian court and tells Nehemiah, who is Jewish, that Jerusalem is in great distress. Its walls are in ruins. Its people are living in poverty and great shame. When Nehemiah hears this, he immediately breaks down into tears. The king asks him what's wrong, and he says, The city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies in waste, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He begs his king to send him to Jerusalem with a military detail and with enough timber to rebuild the city walls. The king seems to think this is an excellent idea and appoints Nehemiah governor of the region with vast powers, not only to rebuild the city, but to restore the morale and the faith of the Jewish people who have been through so much. Nehemiah sets out on his mission And 12 years later, he reports to his king about his accomplishments. And it's this report that has been preserved in the Bible as the Nehemiah memoir. Like most memoirs, it's kind of self-serving, kind of a story that makes him out to be the supremely wise and strong and fearless hero of his own story. We can take some of that with a grain of salt. But it turns out that the lessons of Nehemiah are nearly as relevant today as they were 2,400 years ago. This is because Nehemiah's memoir is practically a step-by-step manual for anyone with an interest in turning a defeated and disorganized community into a proud and inspired theocracy. Nehemiah's first step, of course, was to establish his authority. That was not too hard, since he had a letter of appointment from the king and a cavalry regiment to enforce his demands. The next thing he needed to do was prove his usefulness. This he did by expertly rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with seriousness and dedication. The people saw his competency, began to trust him as a leader. His third step was to really convince the people that he was on their side. To really prove that he was a man of the people, he knew that his people were all in debt up to their ears, debt that had forced them off of their ancestral lands and reduced them into a state of economic slavery. So he gathered the wealthy landowners together, the ones who held all the debt, and he decreed with great courage that from that day on, all debts were canceled. Restore to them, he said, this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Of course, this made him wildly popular with the ordinary folks, and not so popular with the wealthy landowners, some of whom tried to assassinate him, But Nehemiah proved too wily to fall for their traps. So far, so good, right? But still, Nehemiah saw the people of Israel were living with the traumas of their past. They had been through the very worst kind of national trauma. When Babylon defeated them, their own national story was being lost. They didn't get who they were as a people anymore. They didn't know hardly anything about Moses and the patriarchs, the escape from slavery in Egypt, the law, the covenants. All they knew was that they were poor and defeated, and they had no reason to believe in themselves or in the God they used to worship. Why, after all, why had God allowed these terrible things to happen to them? What's to prevent them from happening again? without any shared identity, without any compelling and unifying narrative, without a sense of where they were going as a people, how their God would protect them, how could they heal and move forward as a people? This is when Nehemiah gave them the thing they needed most, something far more important than fortified walls. They needed a national mythology. They needed a heroic story about themselves. They needed a dream of themselves and of their God, a dream that would give them the confidence and the wherewithal to pull themselves together and stand on the world stage as a proud and strong people. So this is what gets us to the scene that we heard this morning. Nehemiah gathers all the people together and has the priest Ezra read the law of Moses to the people, and the Levites are there interpreting the law so that the people understand it, and this is basically what they're led to understand. One, that there is a celestial rule book in the universe given to us by God that tells us exactly what we have to do to win God's favor and avoid disaster and cataclysm. Two, that the reason why we were defeated by the Babylonians is that we had stopped obeying the law, and so God had to punish us with disaster and cataclysm. Three, we have been through the worst of our punishments now. We've paid our debt to God in full, and as long as we continue to obey all the laws that our God has decreed, God will continue to protect us from disaster and cataclysm. Four. Unfortunately, and here's the rub, some of you are violating the law as we speak with your mixed marriages. And so from here on out, everyone who is married to a non-Jew must leave their spouse. No exceptions, or else disaster and cataclysm. You know, it's this last little detail that explains the curious little phrase in our reading this morning, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. A lot of biblical interpreters gloss over this, or they read it to mean that the people were weeping with joy, but no. This is the moment when Nehemiah puts the hammer down. Mixed marriages at this point had been happening in the land of Judah for over a century, and we can be sure that every person within earshot of Nehemiah knew in that instant what this meant, that from then on out, families would be broken up, wives and children would be abandoned to the streets, and henceforth the state would have a very keen interest in regulating the private lives of its people. From then on out, love across boundaries became a crime. At this point, Nehemiah's power was insurmountable. The priests in the temple cult were fully on board, of course. The military was on his side. And the myth that he had delivered to the people was so compelling, with such dire consequences, should anyone dare to disobey, that it was easy for Nehemiah to enforce a period of ethnic cleansing of brutal dimensions. So, of course, they were weeping when they heard Nehemiah's decree. In his own words, he says, in those days, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and beat them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God." And we can be sure that Nehemiah was not alone, single-handedly beating and hair-pulling. He had the temple state on his side, And so now violence against those seen to be other became essential to the stability and well-being of the people. This, of course, is the shadow side of all religion and of all government, a shadow too often ignored by the priests and the politicians who are always so eager to weaponize religion for the sake of power. To this day, Nehemiah is hailed as one of the founders of the temple state with hardly a mention of the violence that theocracies require. The choices Nehemiah made are a blueprint for anyone seeking to build a theocracy, whether it's the Taliban or ISIS or the radical wing of conservative Christians today. There's always this intoxicating mixture of populism, national mythology, and withering violence. For them, hope is found in obedience, God's favor is won through ethnic or religious or sexual purity, any love that crosses those boundaries is met with violence, and women and children always end up paying the biggest price. By way of contrast to Nehemiah this morning, we find Jesus in a very similar scene. He also stands before his people. He also unrolls a scroll of Holy Scripture and reads it aloud and offers an interpretation. And like Nehemiah, Jesus also is looking out at a people who are beaten down and robbed of dignity and bullied by state violence. And yet, unlike Nehemiah, nobody's weeping when Jesus reads, Jesus offers good news to the poor, not bad news to the foreigner. In Jesus, they find a message that unifies the people in love, not purity. A boundary-crossing love for the good Samaritan and the leper A respect for women and children, and a devotion to the poor, the sick, the impure, the queer, the misfit, the nonconformist. Over the next few years of his life, with every parable and every healing and every miracle he performs, Jesus will challenge the purity cult of the temple state that Nehemiah invented until the day comes when he himself becomes its victim, and then suddenly no victim at all. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of God's favor. These words, as Desmond Tutu used to say, are what makes the Bible the most dangerous book on the planet. And may we never forget its lessons. Amen.